the first five verses, and then we will look very briefly at Matthew 21, the first five verses. Isaiah 2, and then later Matthew 21. On this Palm Sunday, we read God's Word. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, if you would turn to Matthew 21, Matthew chapter 21, the first five verses, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Would God add his blessing now to the reading of his word? Would you pray with me? Almighty God, as we have read your word and these fantastic prophecies, Lord, they are true They are real and they are relevant. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have hearts open to hear your word, fertile, desirous of you to bear fruit in our lives. Grant us the fruit of repentance and the fruit of praise. We ask that this would be the case in this church among each individual here. We also pray that this would be the case at Grace Cochran Church as Pastor Josh preaches there. We pray that the nations would be streaming to your word, that they would want to come and hear the gospel. So we pray that on this day, this Sunday morning, across the world, that your word would go out, the gospel would go out, and it would pierce many hearts so that many would be saved and that they would join in this glorious Zion to worship you as our King. Do this, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
It is Palm Sunday. That time in the church calendar that recalls the triumphal entry of Jesus in, into Jerusalem. My intention is to show from Isaiah 2 the connection to Palm Sunday, the reason why Palm Sunday exists. Palm Sunday, that first one at Jesus' triumphal entry, was a time of celebration then. But how are we feeling today? If you're like me, the weeks pass and there's so many things that are discouraging. Depressing even. Isn't it a little bit depressing to have snow on April 7th? Or April 2nd? You woke up, I, there's snow at our house. Maybe, maybe, maybe you live in some balmy part of southern Alberta, but we had snow this morning. Ready for it to be gone. It's easy to be discouraged. Mark Twain, when newspapers said that he was dead, supposedly made the quip that reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. We could say the same about the Church of Jesus Christ in Canada. Sure, the church, as I look out, just spent the week with 62 pastors and church leaders, that's encouraging, but when you look beyond that, the church seems very beaten and bruised, anemic in parts, malnourished. Churches this morning, many of them are being fed a diet of, I don't know, sawdust and sugar cubes or something like that, uh, gluten-free buns, uh, you know, all, all of that stuff that is not nourishing. <laughs> I speak with some feeling as I'm trying to eat the gluten-free. But we could also say with apologies to Mark Twain that reports of the church's death are greatly exaggerated. You can come here on a Palm Sunday and you look out on the landscape of society as, you've, as we've all done these last few weeks and you might feel, in honesty, you might feel all of this out there, we're coming to the end. And you know it isn't, but it can feel like there is no turning back from the disaster that awaits us. And you can feel this way. And when you do, you're in good company. I feel that way many times. Many congregations feel that way. The people of Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah's day felt that way too. They had, I think, given in to despair. Not, not merely a hopelessness, but something else that is a threat to each one of us. Not just a hopelessness, but a cynicism. Isaiah saw a vision of these people in God's judicial court, these court proceedings that were against Judah and Jerusalem, and God was against them because they had become cynical. They had become cynical and they were giving lip service to their Lord while giving their lusts to licentiousness. It felt like it was over. Isaiah chapter 1, we're told that the faithful city had become a whore. And yet, reports of Zion's death were greatly exaggerated. For at the end of chapter 1 and verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. The book of Isaiah is filled with so much judgment. You can get kind of caught up in it. I see, I see some of the 
kind of Twitter theologians where they'll appropriate Isaiah. And, it's, and it can kind of be tempting to revel in God's vengeance against his enemies if you think them as your enemies. I, these people I don't like. Yeah, God, you go get them. Or you can feel depressed by reading about so much death and damnation and judgment, all of this to come. But we need to pause on this Palm Sunday and consider that when God rolls back the clouds of judgment and He shows, as as Paul had just in the opening liturgy from Psalm 67 and from Numbers 6, when He shows the light of His countenance, the shine of His face, when he, when he shows the glory and the grace of His goodness, when God does that, then weeping may last for the night, but joy comes when? In the morning. And that is the truth. And with apologies to Mark Twain, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1-5 to five is that. Reports of Zion's demise are greatly exaggerated because the prospect of what Isaiah saw was that Zion would be the new center of gravity for the whole universe. And that's what we're going to discover together. Now the section, in context, just to open that up, the section opens with a repetition, Isaiah 2 verse 1, the repetition of chapter 1 verse 1, the very start of the book. And it only drops the reference to the kings whom Isaiah served. So liberal scholars will say, oh, this is a completely independent section. It's just been dropped in. They'll, they'll think that. Simply, it's, it's, it's just Isaiah restating again this word that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And this vision or this word, this burden that Isaiah had, was this complex series of oracles and visions that all came together, even including that most famous one in chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord in, in this spectacular heavenly throne room. That vision, which John 12 tells us, that vision was of Jesus' glory, and Isaiah was speaking about Him. So the book of Isaiah is in some sense about Jesus Christ. And that's what we're entered into. The other thing we have to recognize when we look at the book of Isaiah, even starting off, is that it was written to the southern kingdom. The kingdom had been divided into a northern and southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom were supposedly the good guys. They were supposedly the purebloods. Jerusalem was the center and seat of David's kingdom, the focal point of Israel's earthly worship in the temple. And this is, this is then, this, this whole orientation is that the gravitational pull was towards Jerusalem. That's what we have in the Old Testament. So Isaiah chapter 2 starts off and gives us what's going to happen in the future. It gives us an eschatology, the study of the last things. And it says, verse 2, it shall come to pass in when? The latter 
days. Now you're thinking, okay, for all these troubles and trials that Isaiah's readers experience, God wants them to look forward in hope, but you're thinking if there's eschatology here, what's Clint's millennial position? And that's what's going through your head. Well, you'll have to talk about that at lunchtime. Try to, try to discover that. But we read, Isaiah says in verse 2, he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And then all the nations shall flow to it. Now this might sound like the description of a literal mountain. Like uh, if you go, where am I? You go down the street, you go up the hill to Tom Campbell's Hill, you go up there and you walk around up there. You know, everybody takes their dog for a walk up there. And you can look out over the city and when you look west, you can see the mountains. Well, it'd be like saying that Tom Campbell's Hill is going to be elevated to the height of the Rocky Mountains. That's if you took this in a wooden, literal fashion. That's not the case. I mean, you would expect that if you had such a height, then whatever flows from it would flow like a river, like, like the Bow River flowing from the Rocky Mountains. But, but that's not the case. All the nations, they don't flow from it. They flow to it. It is a reversed flow. All the nations shall flow to it. Nothing flows up to a mountain. So this is, this is some great reversal. A reversal of the polarity. The physics have changed. The center of gravity has been displaced. A new gravity has been imposed. And that is the, the epic change that this passage refers to. The center of gravity is the mountain of the house of the Lord. The place of His special worship. The global center of gravity is the seat of the Lord's special presence. And I know across this town, there are all kinds of people who don't agree with that. They don't agree. They would think that's silly to say that the center of gravity is the Lord's special presence. But this world may deny gravity, but they cannot defy it. They can't. That is the gravitational pull of the entire universe is towards the Lord's special presence. The nations will flow into it. And just that's the case in this church, isn't it? There's the British, there's the Colombians, there's the British Colombians. This is, you know, we, we got them all. All coming, having flowed toward this glorious mountain. This glorious mountain is the gravitational center. It is, it is then magnetic in a sense. And that's why then we have in verse 3, it says, Many peoples shall come and say, Come, C come, let us Go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Many of you might be thinking it's April. You would maybe plan to go with friends out to the mountains to go hiking, 
but it's still too snowy and cold, so you've canceled all of your plans. You thought you'd be out there by now. You gather your friends together for that kind of thing. You hike together, and you try to get to the top of the mountain, and then you post it on Instagram. That's what it seems like. That's what everybody does. It's the only reason you get to the top of the mountain. You get up there. You look at the view. But imagine, hey, gang, let's get together. Let's get together. Let's hike up there because we want to have a view of God. That's what we're doing. Hey, no, you, you got the plans. No, no, you need to come along. We want to see God. We want to come close. Come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That's the spirit here. So you have this reverse flow of non-Jewish peoples who will stream towards the, the dignity and the royalty and the majesty of the covenant Lord of Israel. It's Israel's God that they're going to come to. Israel's God will be the magnetic center for the universe. And it will be all these hikers, all these journeyers, all these pilgrims, all these sojourners encouraging each other to go to God. That's what you do when you come to church. Even when you show up, you've got the ministry of showing up. And I've said, we've said it all many times. When you show up, it reminds me that I'm not crazy. And if I show up, hopefully you think, yeah, well, there's a few others. Maybe we're crazy together, but we're together at least. We're going to go up to the mountain, the top of the mountain together. And this is what we long for, isn't it? We long to see the streams of people seeing, as it were, it may be crass to say it, but seeing the popularity of God. That He's the one that everybody is fascinated with. Not, not, not a celebrity, not a politician, not some influencer, but God is the one that we are captivated with. We can think of all this cultural tide, this is how we speak, the cultural tide being against Christians, being against Christians in this town, in Calgary, feels that way. The cultural tide is against us, certainly was against the faithful folks in Isaiah's day. But how different then to consider, no, the nations will stream to God. They will be saying, no, let's go up to God. That's what we have to keep in our eye. That's what we have to remember. Not worrying about the cultural tides. It will go in and go out. But there will be a flow to the mountain of the house of God. Why do they go? Why do the nations flow in? There's a reason. The reason they flow in is for wisdom. Is the way I'll summarize it. These nations stream to God's presence for the right reason because they are magnetized and compelled by God's wisdom. You see it there at the latter part of verse 3. The purpose is that He may teach us His ways. That we may walk, not in our own paths, not in the paths of the algorithms, not in anybody else's path. We may walk in His paths. 
For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, that's the hope. The hope is that instead of lawlessness, there would be a law. Instead of everything being anarchy, there is a word of guidance, a word of revelation, a word of clarity that comes from God that we can hold on to. This magnetic wisdom is the wisdom of God's Word. And it's why people, like yourselves, have come and go. They go to a church like ours, to a church that aspires to be a Bible-teaching church. Not an experienced church, not an entertainment church, not a church that's a seeker church, not a church characterized by any number of things, but simply that teaches the Bible. Why are we... Bibliolaters? We idolize the Bible? No, it's because that is the word that comes forth, the word of the Lord. It is the law coming from Zion. It is the one that we want to walk by. And people are drawn to it. They're drawn to it because they're flowing to it. It's magnetic. They're pulled towards the word. It's one of the marks of a true Christian. They are increasingly pulled towards the Word of God. They want to be conformed to the Word. If they move away from it, they're pulled back. That's what a Christian does, and that's what, how a Christian acts. And the result, and this is kind of crazy, is that you have Gentiles who become a sort of Zionist. They become Zionist in a certain way. You remember the Psalms? Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. What's in Psalm 2? The nations who raged in Psalm 2, they raged against God, will be the nations who humbly meditate on God's Word in Psalm 1. That's going to be the great reversal. That's what happens. That's what happens when the Lord is seated on David's seat in Zion, fulfilling David's prophecy of a son to replace him in Zion, and he makes the nations learn the language of Zion. That's why you study the Bible, so you can know God, but you can also learn His language. That's why we speak and memorize and talk in the language of the Bible, because that's who we belong to. We speak the language of Zion, because That is our God. That is our ethnicity. That's our nationality. We belong to His kingdom. God then makes His Word the magnetic center for wisdom. And the nations rage no more against God, but they meditate on His Word day and night. But this is... No mere personalized religion, or or I I shouldn't say personalized, it's no mere privatized religion. Oh, well, I've just got my own little religious thing, and it doesn't really matter what happens in society. It doesn't matter what happens elsewhere. No, no, that's not it. The Gentiles will submit to the covenant Lord of Israel as their own ever-present Lord and judge, as their ruler. He'll be not only the magnetic center for peace, or for wisdom, but of peace as well. Look at verse 4. He shall judge 
Between whom? Between the Jews? Do it different Jews? It says, no, he'll judge between the nations, Gentiles. He shall dis- decide disputes for many peoples, people groups, if you will. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. That means they're not going to have the implements of war. They're going to have the implements of getting to business and actually growing stuff. It means that they're at peace. They're busy at peace. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the theocracy to come that Isaiah prophesied. The Lord's judgment is so weighty, so wise, that the nations will give up fighting each other. They won't be scheming. There won't be any geopolitical drama. They're not thinking about that. What is pressed upon them is what the Lord is deciding for them. What is He judging? What does He say? How does He discern? And they're all going to be busy. They're going to be too busy learning His ways, learning His paths, learning His his Word, and they will no longer learn war anymore. It's a word to all of us. That we can busy ourselves with the things of this world, learning all of their ways, rather than learning the Word of God. And if we're learning the Word of God, we don't have time to learn all the ways of worldliness. We don't have time to fool with that stuff because we are caught up learning from God. There's a parallel passage. It seems the the minor prophets who were sometimes contemporary with Isaiah and often just, just a little bit after him, they used Isaiah's foundational prophecies and they brought them over into their prophecies. And in Micah chapter 4, you have pretty much identically the same same prophecy here as Isaiah has in chapter 2. And John Calvin commenting then on Micah 4, which is saying the same thing about this, he he said this, Calvin said, Throughout this passage, Calvin says, the prophet teaches us that people are not to be constrained by an armed force or by the power of the sword to submit to David's posterity. But they are to be really and thoroughly reformed so that they submit themselves to God, they unite with the body of the church, and become one people with the children of Abraham. For they will yield a voluntary service and embracing the teaching of the law, they will renounce their own superstitions, end of quote. That is what's going on. That's the theocracy that Isaiah is predicting. It's because the magnetic center of the world is God's special rule and reign, His kingdom come, and it is a kingdom that brings wisdom and peace. But what's missing here? What's missing in Isaiah's prophecy? The section is all about Gentile nations. All about pretty much, mostly, I'm guessing, most of us here. Non-Jews. It's all about those guys. 
You know, they're the ones who are summoning each other to go to God. But what about Israel? What about Israel? What about them? Is Israel dead by that point? No. Reports of Israel's death are greatly exaggerated too. Because even if Isaiah's hearers thought they were doomed, there was a very important closing invitation here in verse 5. You see it there. O house of Jacob, it's, it's, it's a switch. O house of Jacob, come let us, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The Gentiles, they're all going up there. Hey, hey, Jewish guy to other Jewish guy, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's, let us join in. If the Gentiles will stream up to Israel's Lord, then why shouldn't Israel? Or did Israel have a case of familiarity breeds contempt, which can happen in the church too. You're familiar with holy things and you treat them with contempt. You treat them as nothing. You treat them as common. But Israel needed to get in line. They needed to get in the queue. Because by chapter 19 of Isaiah, Isaiah 19, 23, the Egyptians and the Assyrians... Israel's historic enemies, they're going to worship together, worship Israel's God. It's an amazing thing. And then by chapter 66 and verse 23, it says, From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Just turn over to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. If I don't tell you explicitly, you won't turn there. So I'm going to tell you to do it. Isaiah 62. Look at verse 10. Isaiah 62, verse 10. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up the signal over the people's. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Do you hear, as, you, as I read it aloud and you read it, Do you hear the connections to Matthew 21? Do you hear the connections then to the announcement when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, when he reversed gravity, when he changed the polarity, when he became the center magnetically? That's what was going on. Now, Matthew 21 is quoting from a different prophet, from Zechariah chapter 9. But Zechariah is building off of Isaiah again. And so, in Isaiah 2 at the end, when when you have Jews offering this summons to other Jews, then that kind of summons to say, let's go and walk in the light of the Lord... That kind of summons needed to be repeated in Israel, to Israel, for centuries. Because what happened after Isaiah's day? 
the Jews felt the sting of exile. Then they had this sort of anticlimactic return from exile. And then they suffered through various powers who came in and then dominated them and occupied them even down to Jesus' day. You remember how this, there's this summons at the end of Isaiah 2 that's, you know, to Jews. And it's, it's, you know, you would think, oh, they're going to come to this earthly Jerusalem. Come on, let's go to the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus said in Matthew 23, 37, he said of that Jerusalem, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. They were not willing to listen to the invitation at the end of chapter 2. They're not willing to go along with someone who said, come with me. I'm planning a hike. Come along. Yeah, I'm going to stay home and watch TV. No, no, come. It'll be good for you. Come along. We're going to the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, they, they don't do it for me. No, no, come. Come on this hike. Come. We're actually going to see God. Our God. The God of our fathers. The God of our people. We're going to go see Him. Nah. Jesus said, you were not willing. But Jesus didn't stop teaching the Word. Just because Israel wasn't willing, he didn't stop teaching the word. He didn't stop being a lawgiver. Remember him being a lawgiver in the Sermon on the Mount? What did he say? You have heard it was said, but I say to you. He's, he is imposing himself as a new Moses, as a new lawgiver. He could do that. When the Greeks wanted to see Jesus in John 12, what did Jesus conclude? He said in John 12, 23, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why? The nations are are flowing into it. They're coming to Zion. They're coming to the magnetic center. They're coming. The Greeks are here. Now it's time for me to be glorified. Verse 32 of John 12 says, And I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw whom? All people to myself. Because he's the center. The Gentile flow to the word of the Son of David, that is the new spiritual theocracy. Or what we generally call the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The one who has come and is yet to come. John Newton, he wrote a beautiful hymn called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Akeen and I were having a little bit of a a back and forth about all of our favorite Zion-oriented hymns. And we could just have our own hymn sing together and leave you guys out of it because we're we're reveling in all these hymns that nobody knows about. (laughs) But one of the great ones... Is, is this John Newton one who obviously wrote Amazing Grace? Glorious things of thee are spoken. 
And in the fifth stanza, he says this, Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride and pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. Do you know the solid joys and the lasting treasure? That is what belongs to Zion's children, those who believe in Jesus Christ. Was it the end of the story for the ethnic Jews? Well, reports of Israel's death are greatly exaggerated. Paul could cite himself in Romans chapter 11. He said, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has he? They wouldn't listen. Oh, no, has he rejected them? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. How is he, he showing that? He's saying, yeah, I'm believing in Jesus. I'm believing in Jesus. God has fulfilled his promise. I'm a Christian. He goes on in chapter 11 to describe how if the wild olive branches can be grafted into the vine, namely Gentiles, how much more can the natural ones that had been cut off be regrafted in? And so then there is that possibility and prospect. And notice, even this, Paul could say to Jews and Gentiles in Christ that the Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem that you can, you know, book Air Canada and fly there, not that Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem above, Paul says in Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And that is where our citizenship is, in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 We look to the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 23, where it says, in that, that, in that new Jerusalem, its lamp, we are told, is the Lamb. Its lamp is the Lamb. Remember? Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, O house of Jacob. Its lamp is the Lamb, verse 24 of Revelation 21. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Amazing. Now you still wonder, well, what's Clint's eschatology here? Talking about the new Jerusalem, positive future for ethnic Jews and so on. I'll leave you guessing. I'm not going to satisfy that curiosity. You'll have to ask me on my own. But the focus is on this latter-day fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The first Palm Sunday, Matthew 21, 5. Say to whom? The daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. The new center of gravity for wisdom the new center of gravity for peace. The magnetic center has come. 
It is here. Jesus is here. Of course, we know by the end of the week, they crucified Jesus. He died on the cross, and on the third day, He rose from the dead. But in His resurrection from the dead, He vindicated that He is, in fact, the center. And that's why we have crosses everywhere. It's because it's the center. Because Christ is the center. His work of atonement is the center. He lives and still is the center for all of our worship. So the question is, what have you come to? Like, like Larry, what have you come to? I've come to church this morning. Yeah, well, you did that. It's great. But what have you come to? You're a Jew or a Gentile. What have you come to? Hebrews 12, 22 says very clearly, echoing our passage, saying, if you are a Christian believer, he says, the writer to the Hebrews says, you, you have come, have come already. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to it and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the Spirit, the Spirit of the righteous made perfect. And then Hebrews 12, 24, you have come. Who have you come to? You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is the kind of Zionist I am. And that is the kind of Zionist you should be. And I pray that you are. Jesus is the new center of gravity. When he arrived in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, he established himself at the center of this new Zion. The picture of Isaiah 2 is a reminder then of the global consciousness of God and His desire to draw all the nations to Himself. That's, that's what He wants to do. And today we call that global consciousness missions. It's missions. John Piper, well, it's 13 years ago, John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad that Paul quoted from in Psalm 67. And he said this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. End of quote. And that, that right there, though, is the point that Isaiah was making. And so my questions to you as we close are these. It's just simply this. Is Jesus, is Jesus the center of your life? Is He the center of your life? Is He the gravitational pull of your life, the magnetic center pulling you ever towards Him. You stray, He pulls you back. You want to be pulled. You yield yourself to be pulled to Him. Is He the center of your life, first? And secondly, 
Are you feeling the pull so much that you say to others, come, hey, hey, come feel the pull with me. Come, come, let's, let's go up the mountain together. Let's flow together. Come, let us go together. Are you telling other people because of the confidence that you have that this pull is ineffable and inevitable and will always draw and you want to tell others this week, this holy week, you don't have to feel super spiritual just because it's holy week. But if you do believe it's true, share it. Tell somebody. Say, come, come, let's go see God. Let's go up the mountain together. Come with me. Let us behold our God. Let us do it together. Let's repent, turn from displacing Jesus. Let us repent of refusing the invitation. And let us come and see him and ask that God would draw us to him today. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, come now and draw us. Draw us to Yourself that we would behold You and worship You and see You for who You are with all Your wisdom and all Your capability to bring us peace. Lord, draw us now, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What else do you have? All I have is Jesus Christ. Let's sing together. Please stand. If you're a Christian believer, I just urge you to start really believing who you are. And if you're not a Christian believer, why not? The truth is, for those who believe in Jesus, this truth applies to them. As Peter said, as you come to him, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, another quotation from Isaiah, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You won't be put to shame. So go to him. Flow to him. Believe on him today. Go in peace.